deep in the backwoods of America. We have climbed the highest mountains, searched the densest forest, dragged the swamps, and scoured the prairies to find our leader, retired U.S. Marine gunny, Bud Cornwell. Welcome back, Patriots, to the Patriot Cause. I have, obviously, a very connected guest with us today. Herbie is a direct reflection of the knowledge and skills that the military puts together. We get the foundation when we join the military, and then we go out and still save our country. And that's what he's doing today. He joined the U.S. Navy at 17. Did mom let you do this or did you circumvent well, it's, her? It, no, no, didn't circumvent her. Actually, I had a, I, and I don't talk about it very much, but I had a very hard childhood and I couldn't wait to get out of the house. Yep, and I know the feeling. I graduated from high school early. I was 16 when I graduated. And I went to college for a year, but I, I didn't belong in college. I was too young and, and didn't appreciate it. And on top of that, I won't go into the detail. Let me just say this. I couldn't wait to join the military. So I went down to the recruiting office. I talked to all the branches of service. I chose the Navy because I was born in Miami Beach and I loved the ocean. And the way I figured it was no matter where they stationed me, it would be on an ocean somewhere. So to me, that's, you know, and I thought yeah. to myself, if I joined the Air Force, I could end up in the middle of Kansas somewhere, you know, or Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas or something, which I, you know, who wants to be on that? And the, and the also, the, the Air Force kind of seemed like Boy Scouts to me. They didn't, I mean, I know that that's not fair, but they didn't seem as military no, as the absolutely. other branches. I agree with you. I agree with you. And then you know, uh, the, we're talking yeah, about, you know, you're talking about the Air Force, right? Um. Uh, most of us that have been part of the military have been involved in all the different departments, you know, different missions or whatever. And I always call it a chair force. You know, they sit well, in a chair, they fly airplanes, and so it's the chair. I force, was, right? I was in uh, the naval security. I, I, I was in the naval security group, and I worked at the National Security Agency. So I worked with all the services because NSA is a military agency. And at the time that I was in, it happened to be an admiral that was the director of the NSA. His name was Bobby Inman. And, I, you know, I just, it was between the Navy and the Marines. The Army, I didn't really consider because, I, this is going to sound stupid, I don't like their uniforms. I don't know what else to tell you. I, <laughs> I, okay. I mean, I was I was 17 <laughs> years old. I thought I, I just thought they were drab green. And plus, I could also end up in the middle of Kansas. Somewhere. Yeah, but if, if you're talking about uniforms, you know, Marines are the best of the best. So absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, in the end, I ended up in the Navy because strictly because I wanted to be on a coastline. And but when I went into the Navy, I went in for a job that I didn't end up getting. I, I went in to be a personnelman and my yeah. I, I and, and uh, I wanna, hang on a second. Yeah. Uh, civilians don't understand this personnel, man. It's administration. It's, you know, going in like HR, all that kind of stuff. So go ahead, sir. Yeah. 
So anyway, so I went in to be a personnelman only because I didn't want to be a bosun's mate and sit on the deck all day long. And well, I mean, that's, you know, what can I tell you? So, but when I was in basic training at the time, you know, this was the Cold War and they gave everybody a foreign language aptitude test. And I actually, I ended up having to take it three times because if you remember the, the, the test, it was called the FLATMA test, the foreign language aptitude test. Yep. It had 60 questions, but you weren't supposed to be able to finish the test. The average person would finish 15 or 16 questions of it. It was a make-believe language. They gave you some vocabulary. They gave you some grammar rules. Make a long story short, I kept answering all 60 questions and getting perfect scores. So they made me retake the test three times because they thought I was cheating. And by the end of the third time, I said, fellas, pretty soon I'm going to speak this language. I mean, how many times do I have to take this test? <laughs> so then they told me that I could, I was going to be a CT, a cryptologic technician interpretive CTI. And they told me I could have my choice of Russian, Chinese, Hebrew, or Arabic, the four most difficult languages at the, that, that they were teaching at the time. And I thought about it and I chose Russian. So then I, went to the, then I went to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey. And in those days, it, it was a full year. It was, I have to tell you, one of the greatest years of my life. I loved DLI and I loved Monterey. And while I was there, by the way, I joined the Monterey Navy Flying Club and learned to fly because most of the guys, when they were out of class, went drinking. But I was blessed from birth with hating alcohol. I just can't stand the taste of it. That's fine. So, yeah, well, yeah, I was lucky. I mean, I'm, you know, I could have, I could have been, but I just don't like the taste of it. So rather than go drinking, I went down and I don't know what made me go find the flying club. I really don't remember, but I learned to fly and that was awesome. And then from there, I went to Goodfellow Air Force Base for the Air Force School of Applied Cryptologic Sciences. And I enjoyed San Angelo, Texas. I thought San Angelo was great. And then after that, I went to New London, Connecticut, because I volunteered for submarines. And then after New London, I was stationed at NSA and did uh, TAD on temporary duty for non-military folks on submarines. So my specialty was the Soviet Northern Fleet. I would go out typically two, two times a year because each cruise was a little over three months. I'd pick up the boat in Norfolk. Um, along with myself and other, there were there was always two of all of us. There was two CTIs, and th they're different. I don't want to bore everybody, but they're different kind of CTs: telemetry, Morse code, all that kind of stuff. And there were two of us because we worked twelve-hour shifts, twelve on, twelve off, which in a submarine goes fast because it, there's no windows. I mean, there's you know there's nothing else to do. So um, I worked twelve on, twelve off. I love submarine duty, and when they were and we when we got done they would typically dump us in Scotland. They would go into uh, Northern Scotland where we have a, or in those days we had, I don't know that we still do, but with the Royal Navy, we had an agreement. They'd leave us off. I had three months of my pay plus hazardous duty pay um, that I hadn't pay, paid a nickel. I hadn't paid, you know, spent at all. And then I'd load up a money belt, take my other friends. And because I speak other languages, me and my friends would travel around Europe and we just had a great time. It was, I got to tell you, for a young man who's single, I cannot imagine having a better time. It was awesome. Yep. And, and I loved my job. It was great. So here's here's the weird part. You know, I'm a Marine. I know all about the, the Navy services. The Marine Corps is a department of the Navy. We're the well, man department, just so you know. But anyway, well, yeah. we're we're department of the Navy. I wasn't going to bring that up, Gunny. I wasn't going to bring that up. I know, but here here's my question. You grew up in, you know... And looking at the ocean want to be part of it. Well, 
I have a great friend of mine that was a senior chief in the submarine community. And I asked him, I says, okay, so if you're on a submarine and you go out to do missions, right? Um, how long do you stay underwater? And he said, there's many times that we would stay, you know, anywhere between three and four months underwater, never seeing the sun. Never come I'm up. I'm going, okay, so you're wanting to see the ocean. You have no windows in a submarine. Well, how can you see the ocean, you know? Well, you know, you're busy. You know. And in those days, um, you know, everyone smoked. And cigarettes right. on board... I don't. I know you remember this, but in those days, cigarettes when you went out to sea were two and a half dollars a carton. Oh yeah. So yeah, there were three and a half at the BX, and they were two and a half when you went to sea. So you always brought a sea bag to load up on the ones that you got at sea. And <laughs> I, it's a true story. Um, I rode fast attacks. There's two kinds of submarines. There's boomers, which are the nuclear missile submarines. And they just go out in the middle of the ocean and sit there. Their job is to remain undetected. And then a couple times a day, they see if World War III has started. And then there's the fast attacks. And our, our mission was much more, we we're, were much smaller, but our mission was to, we actually went into the Soviet waters. We were, we were right in their harbors. We were there all the time, all the time. And there was always a boat there. And we would just rotate with the other boats. But you didn't, you know, when you're working 12 hours a day, you know, you play a little cards. I played a lot of uh, cribbage for whatever reason. And, you know, you go to sleep. I, it never bothered me. And the food was great. Submarine food was the best in the Navy. And, it, you know, it was great. I love my duty. I, I have nothing bad to say about the Navy. They were awesome. Yeah. So before we get to the main thing, your website, your cause or whatever, as a Marine, I got to say this. We always rag each other. I was an avionics instructor in Memphis with the Navy uh, that been on ships and so forth. So, you know, this competition always goes back. So always tell people, you know, what is the purpose of the Navy? Why are they there? This is from Harry a Marine Marines. stand. Harry Marines. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> they're overpaid taxi drivers. <laughs> So we didn't have any Marines on the subs with us, but after we would travel around Europe, we would go down to Rota, Spain, where there's a big, there still is a big U.S. naval presence in Rota, Spain. And we would, we would go there and just see what, what ships were going to cross the ocean and go back to Norfolk. And we just catch a ride. And usually I would grab an aircraft carrier because they were a smooth ride. You know, it takes a big ocean to rock an aircraft carrier and submarines don't rock. When you go underwater, there's no waves. It's just, dead calm it, it you, you have no no sensation of movement but on top of the water even a, even an aircraft carrier moves but i enjoyed it and anyway i met a lot of marines there then i went when i was at dli i went to i was in class with three marines uh lance corporal i don't know why i remember this a lance corporal named david cop a gunnery sergeant named gunny kibalowski i don't know what his first name was although he was a great guy and then a, a marine major i can't remember his name but this guy ended up plunking out. And I, I was his tutor. We tried, he was an engineer. He'd gone to the Naval Academy and he had a degree in engineering, but engineers can't learn language well. It's it's not a logical thing. They're, they're very logical people and language is not logical. It just is. And you have to learn to accept that, but he never could. God bless him. I don't know. Well, but I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. he had a great career. Absolutely. But here's the thing. 
I didn't learn this until Somalia. I was a staff sergeant at the time. And I landed or was brought into Somalia seven days after they landed. I call it the CNN landing, right, mm. in Mogadishu. But by the time I left Somalia, I understood and had a better understanding of how all our forces come together to be part of the mission. I didn't understand that. I always, you know, just like every other Marine in the Navy, probably, that, you know, we're it. You know, we're the people. You know, we're like, you know, you can't fight a war without Marines or whatever. I learned something different. What I learned is we have the same mission, but we have different functions to make that happen. And I so much appreciated that when I got back from Somalia in 93, that I started teaching my Marines that were complaining or, you know, the army guys, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're assuming that, you know, you're the best. And I get that. But American forces is, is tremendous across this globe. And a lot of people don't understand that. And I appreciate, really, I appreciate your time and your service to our country. It, it, it just makes us understand how important it is that all these missions come together, all these services come we together. We all have our part to play. And it's like a Absolutely. giant jigsaw puzzle. And yep. each piece fits a certain way. And there's certain kind of troops you use here and certain kind of troops you use there, certain equipment, certain weapons. Certain, I mean, it's just, it's a very specialized thing. My job was to find out what was going on to warn the next group what they had to do. That was pretty much what we did. We were yeah. there to find out what the Soviets were up to, what their ships were doing, what their capabilities were, how they ran their exercises. And what I learned is they stunk. Thank God. If, there, if we had ever had a war with the Soviets, we would have annihilated them. I mean, thank God. I mean, in a conventional war, thank God. Right. We never fought a war with them. But, you know, I, I yeah. at, at the time, I remember reading in Time Magazine and Newsweek how, you know, they had all these ships and more than we had. And it's because they never mothball anything. They just had all these old ships and they were all rusty and they took. And Russia is very corrupt and they steal a lot in their military. And it was really anyway, I could I have so many stories, but we'll yeah, stick on from, the subject. from a submarine perspective. They've lost more submarines than any other nation. So yeah, we've only um, lost two. We've only lost two. Um, the the uh, oh god, I just had an old man uh, brain fart. I had it in my head a minute ago. It'll come okay. back. We've only lost two, and one we one was probably a reactor meltdown. Although we'll we'll never really know. And the other one, they don't talk about. I think I think that it actually was sunk by it got into a fight it shouldn't have been in. But yep. And uh, you know, a lot of us in the military, especially in naval forces, you know, when they got rid of the the battleships per se, that's when we knew we're going into a whole different environment. Okay, yeah, battleships so, don't have a purpose now. Anyway, so Herbie, let's uh, talk about this 1964 plan. So what well, it's about? Off, you, go ahead. Well, you you asked. So, I'll follow. Yeah. So my question is this. Anytime somebody like myself, I started a podcast almost four years ago 
And I had a reason for that. Why did I want to do this? And so what I'm asking you is what was going through your mind to develop this 1964 plan? Why did you do this? I have four children and grandchildren. I want to leave the world a little bit, little better than I found it. Um, it seems obvious to me that at the root of everything is, is the breakdown of our culture. Yeah. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of different causes and there are, there's very few causes. There's a lot of correlations and most people confuse those two things. So a good example and the 1964 project addresses crime heavily and you know, basically the crime argument comes down to either if you're a leftist, get rid of the guns. And if you're a conservative, lock them up. But neither one really works. Those are those are treating correlations. We've been going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, we have 25 percent of the world's prison population, which is a disgrace for the largest republic in, in history. We only have four percent of the world's population. We have more people locked up than China, North Korea and Russia combined. And then on the other end of the spectrum, people have to get real. There are 400 million guns in private hands. No one, if they tried to take the guns, it would start a revolution. I mean, it's just insane. Plus, as I wrote in my white paper, touching a gun doesn't turn you into a mass shooter. There's there's, there's cause and there's core. A lot of them use guns, but I, but believe it or not, and they never talk about this, um, the worst mass murder w- with a weapon actually took place in Norway. Where, where there are no legal guns. Look, if if a bad guy wants to get a gun, he's going to get a gun. Absolutely. And you know, if if you take the guns away, then they kill each other with knives. The murder the murder rates don't go down. So, you know, so the, the the issue that you're talking about is it's it's really simple, and most people that can't rationalize this doesn't understand. It's not the equipment. It's not the physical device that causes no. the harm it's the person it's the interaction it's the destruction of the nuclear family exactly so, it's the interaction of somebody whether you know they had bad moments in their lives wh- whatever that psychological disconnect well, of reality i know is, is i know what it is this. better than most Because as you know, because you went to my website, in 2008, I was a real estate developer in Mexico when the market collapsed. I tried very, very hard to save my company. And while I was doing it, I broke the law. I did. I'm not going to get into a song and dance about it because because to explain it is to weasel. And I won't weasel. I accept responsibility for what I did. And And I went to prison for a few years. And when I was in prison, I got to know a part of society that people like us never really get to know. Right. And I got to see firsthand and talk with and, and get to know and understand lots and lots of career criminals. Right. And what, it, but the common, the, whether they were drugs in the drug business or whether they were, you know, violent or whatever they were in for 99% of the time, without exaggeration, they were raised without a father. Yes. If they even knew who their father was, he was nothing more than a sperm donor. And they themselves began having sex at a very young age, usually 13 or 14, and they start getting girls pregnant right away. Now, that's the boys. The women do it. The reason these girls are available to them is they're raised without fathers, too, in the same neighborhoods. And women without a dad to tell them that they have value. That's the role of a dad with a woman. 
they look for it and with every man they meet and they spread their legs for every man they meet and they have children. So what, what's worrisome is, is that the good people of this country are having less children than we need to replace our population. But that part of the pop, uh, of the population is having a lot of children. So it's metastasizing. And that's why crime is getting worse because there's more and more and more of this subclass that's huge and it's, and there are causes for it, and that's what the 1964 plan deals with the causes, not the correlations. And and so I'm happy to discuss any part of it you want to go to. You 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 just lead. No, it's just the idea that uh, I can't grab my fingers around is if if you go back to um, as as near as 50 years in this country. What you had was citizens that were part of, one, a country, two, God-fearing, and three, moral fiber in their hearts that was taught to their children. And I'm gonna, I'll give you an example where even that... Uh, is not foolproof. It's not 100%. If you go no. back to Texas, there was a Marine at the time frame. Rice, that, Rice University. I know I know where you're going, aren't yep. you? No, actually, it's Texas University. Oh, and, oh you yeah. weren't going to go to Charles Whitman on the Rice Tower that day? That's Charles Whitman was in, oh, was that Rice in Texas? Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, Texas. And yeah, so this is uh, an individual that grew up in that environment that we thought or should think is perfect. But see, it's very simple. It's the human individual and it's the human heart. If they do not accept, and by the way, he didn't grow up in a non-father-parent you know, environment. But the thing about it is, and this is how I look at it, is if you're not connected with God, the actual God that created you, then you are susceptible to uh, spiritual forces to cause you, in many cases, and you're probably talking about the same guys that you're talking about in prison. I don't know why I did this. It's, it's kind of like always the answer. You know, I just, I was overtaken by whatever it is. And, you know, it, it again. There were, a lot of I, innocent, there were a lot of innocent guys in prison, but, you know, people would just, even the inmates laughed about that. Everybody was innocent. But, you know, when they would tell you their story, it was just, everybody, I knew, I think I met one innocent man the whole time I was in prison, which interestingly enough, I wrote his appeal and it was successful. So my prison hustle, you know, when, when you're in prison, you always have little ways to make extra money with, while you're there. And the way I did it was paperwork because I had, I was much more educated than than 99% of the inmates. And I'd been in business for many years. So I understand the law. And so I used to write motions for, for a lot of these guys. And this particular man was arrested on a, a trumped up gun charge. And I, I'm happy to say we got him out. He he. In fact, he's a friend of mine today. He he lives in Phoenix, and awesome. uh, we still we still hang out now and then. But I got him out, and he was thrilled. But and that that's like my my favorite case I ever worked on. 
because he was innocent. And there was no doubt about it. He was just trumped up. But, you know, these things happen. Most of these guys were guilty of sin. Most of the yeah, guys were guilty of sin. But the thing about it is, is responsibility of a human being, right? You know, most of them don't take responsibility. When, when, so, when you're growing up without a dad, that's one of the things dad teaches you, right? Um, the, the military taught me that because, well, yeah. anyway, I'm not going into my childhood. But um, let me explain what the 19, why 1964. Because it, it relates to what you're saying. 1964 was, in my in my view, when America was at its absolute high point. We, we were very, very powerful. We dominated. Our military was strong. Our economy was strong. We had no inflation. A husband could support a family of four and have two cars in the driveway and a nice home. And the, and the mother could stay home and raise the kids, which I don't care what any feminist says, most women enjoy being moms and would be moms full time if they could, but inflation has destroyed that. But that I'm going off into a different area now. I'm, right. I'm, I don't want to gotcha. go there. No, understand. But also, but ninth, specifically 1964, because that's the year the Civil Rights Act passed, and that was an important piece of legislation because it made discrimination illegal in the United States of all kinds. And at that point, we should have just stopped. You know, we should have sent the Congress home. Everything was going right. All we had to do was not mess it up. And then came LBJ, and then came the Great Society, and then came welfare, and then came the breaking up of the nuclear family, and here we are. So what I'm I'm not obviously we can't turn the clock back to 1964, but we can go back to the way we faced the future in 1964. So what I've done is I've identified three causes that destroyed the nuclear family, and then Another cause of crime, which is drug laws, we'll get to that in a minute. And then I also deal with homelessness and I deal with prison reform. And if you read my prison reform paper, part of it is sending all these guys to basic training, is to is is basically to make them go through a course that 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 is basic training so they can gain some advantage. But I don't I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, not not military basic training in prison with re like retired gunnery sergeants. I literally said that in 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 my uh, white paper. We, there's yeah. lots of retired military DIs from the different services who who could who, who we we could run a weaponless basic training basically, and uh, for the first anyway I don't want to go there I'm getting ahead of myself so let's go back to the family if it's okay with you, and is it okay with you if I talk about what I think are the three causes the nuclear family was destroyed how it was destroyed by cause is that okay yeah so hang on let's let's take a break. Okay. And when we get back, we'll cover exactly what you're talking about, which is most important, is the family. And I agree with you 100%. You and I both grew up in a destructive type family. However, some of us can recover from, you know, those instances. But why should we, why should we be involved? in a destructive type family involvement. And that's what makes it more important is to understand that in my mind, communism is part of this destruction and it's here, it's in America. And this is what we're dealing with in, in a major issue. So don't go away, Herbie. We'll be right back. <laughs>
Welcome back, Patriots. This is the Gunny on your Patriot Cause. I have a, a great, great veteran patriot of mine, Herbie K, is with us. And we're talking about the 1964 plan. And we're going to continue this discussion basically focusing on the family. Why is the family being destroyed? What What is the issues that is causing a lot of these criminals and a lot of this hate in this country? And I think it's because the families are being destroyed and we need to figure out how to get back to that foundation of the family. Thank you. For I've got the back. answer for you. Thank you. So do you want me to talk about the causes first? Is that where you'd yes, like sir. me to go? Absolutely. Okay. There are three causes primarily that destroyed the nuclear family. No fault divorce, the birth control pill, and federal welfare. I'm, I'm going to address them one by one. Prior to 1967, when the first no-fault divorce law was signed by actually Governor Reagan in California, who, by the way, later said it was the greatest mistake of his life, and then it spread to all 50 states, it made marriage just another long-term relationship. So before 1967, it was very difficult to get a divorce. And in fact, it was a disgrace to be divorced. In fact, Ronald Reagan was the first divorced president ever, okay? I mean, you could say maybe Andrew Jackson, but not really. He, he was really the first divorced president. It, you, it used to be a disgrace, and it was a disgrace for a reason, because once you got married and had children, it's not about you anymore. But we've, we've forgotten that. We live in a me, me, me culture. But back then, it was when you had a child, it was about the child. And you don't get divorced unless there's a very, very good reason. But today, you can get divorced just by saying you're incompatible. That has to go away. That was the number one. That's number one cause. Number two cause is the birth control pill. Birth control pill came in 1961. Prior to the birth control pill, you and I remember most girls married as virgins and most boys were very, if they had sex at all, were extremely inexperienced. Maybe they went to war and they, while they were overseas, they, you know, did what they did, but they weren't bringing those girls home to mom, to mama. Okay. That, you, no guy would bring that kind of girl home to his mother. That, that would never happen. And when you have two inexperienced people getting married, and I, I don't want to be funny about this, but when two virgins, sex is like pizza. If you don't know any different, it's all good. But when a woman today, because of a birth control pill, can have a lot of different sexual partners, which is what's going on. You've heard of body count. This is the new term on TikTok. How many women a, a woman is, how many men a woman has slept with, which is insane. Well, what that does is it invites comparison. And women have this I have because of feminism have developed this idea about men that don't exist. You know, between social media and doctoring pictures and and these these apps to date where you just swipe and, you know, you don't know anything about them. It's all looks. It's all about sex. And while I'm not a prude and I have four children and within the confines of a marriage, I think sex is a wonderful thing. But there was a reason that we had these rules in society about chastity and the way I think of it, and it does relate to socialism, communism, and progressivism. Let's take all three of those and call it and call it neo-modernism. It's called postmodernism. They kick over fences 
without asking the three most important questions. And when they kicked over the fence of chastity, the three questions are, why was the fence put up? Who put the fence up? And does it protect us or hold us back? That fence protected us. It protected the nuclear family. It protected marriages. Okay, but once we let that that horse out of the barn, that destroyed the what's the word I'm looking for? The specialness of the, of the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. So that was the second thing. The third thing was the federal welfare state. And I saved it for last because it's the worst thing of all. Welfare, what people call welfare, is a program called AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. The, the rules they wrote were that if a woman had a child out of wedlock, and there was no one around to help her, the government would send her a check. And the more child children she has, and this is still the way it works, the more children she has, the more money she gets. Now, you would think that someone would think that all the way through, and someone did. His name was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was the last great senator of the, in the United States. At the time, he was Lyndon Johnson's assistant secretary of labor. And he wrote a paper in 1969 where he predicted exactly what's happened. We incentivize young women to leave home have children to collect checks. Then we came up with more welfare, food, food support. It used to be called food stamps. Now it's called SNAP. It's the same exact thing. Medicaid, free medical care. The average welfare recipient today that has two children and is a woman is collecting approximately $47,000 in benefits per year, which is an enormous disincentive to work, okay? Because she would have to learn an entry-level job, and she's not going to make $47,000 a year right out of the gate. So she sits at home, and, you know, laziness, I'll tell you, when I went to prison and I got back out and went back to work, it was hard to get back into the habit of, of getting up in the morning and be, having to be somewhere and do a job. And these people are born and live in the, and with every generation, they kept having more and more children. And the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And an apple tree can only have apples. You know, this myth that there are hidden Einsteins in this group, that's nonsense. Apple trees only have apples, not oranges, not nectarines, apples. And these were rotten apples, and they had a lot of them. So the children kept having children, kept having children. And this is why crime has gotten worse and worse and worse because all of these children are growing up without fathers. And then the boys seek some sort of, boys instinctively seek a father. When I was in prison, I was a yard dad. That's what they used to call me. And all those young men used to swarm me all the time because they saw me as a father figure. And they were, it's really, it's really sad. But in, on the outside, they find it with gangs. And the gangs support themselves through, through drugs. And that's the next part I want to talk about, which is the drug war. But it, but as far as the causes of the nuclear family breaking down, it's those three things. So what we need to do is repeal no-fault divorce. There's nothing that we can do about the birth control pill being out. But what we can do is in, is in school make it mandatory that chastity is taught and encouraged to our children. When Instead of sex education talking about 43 genders that don't exist, sex education should be talking about chastity and, and what happens if, if you don't maintain it and how destructive it is to be sexually loose. Because education can work. That's why so few people smoke now. They didn't make smoking illegal. They just told everybody you're going to get cancer, and people started quitting. That's why they don't litter anymore. They ran those ads with the that Indian chief with the tear running down his eye, and all of us went, oh, man, we've been throwing stuff out the window all this time, and we just stopped. You, you almost never see littering anymore. You don't have to make something illegal in order to stop it. 
And then as far as the welfare state's concerned, I advocate devolving it to the states, shutting down all federal welfare and allow each state, if it wishes to, to design its own welfare program that fits its state and its population. Because America is a very diverse country, and each of our states is like a separate little country in a free trade zone. Okay, that's basically what the United States are. And, the, and Wyoming is very different from Florida, which is very different from New York, which is very different from California, Arizona, wherever you live, Virginia. Every state has its own demographics. Every state has its own people. Let the governors and the legislatures design whatever kind of support is appropriate for their state. Plus, states can't print money. So they can't get us into this horrible $32 trillion hole because they're not allowed to issue their own money. They're forced to balance their budget. And then to afford any kind of support, I want to talk about the drug war when you're ready for me to talk about the drug war. So I want to finish up the discussion you just talked about. I figured. I, you know, I, I'm not shy in telling you who I am. I am a Christian. I'm a child of Christ. And I wasn't like this for many years of my life. But now I understand. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them to go and produce. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's just to make babies. No, no. See, we are designed by the creator to produce. And as we produce through life, that's what improves our lives. And the failure of our society to understand that freedom and peace and involvement in a true society is based upon production. And there's so many citizens in this country that like you're talking about being lazy or or not doing anything. I, I have to say this. You're harming yourself. They don't it's, know that. It, that they, don't they, know that. They, they don't know that. Their life would be so much better. And many of them have come out. Many of them have come out of that environment. And produced, you know, and you know, it's women just, are the it's, unhappiest it's they've ever sad. been. Yep, it's, it's very sad. sad. And people exactly. are not getting they're not getting happier. Yale, which is not a conservative organization, did a study yeah. last year on the happiness of women in the United States. And they're the unhappiest they've ever yes, been. Absolutely. Okay. But it, at the root of it all is the destruction of the traditional nuclear family. Absolutely. Now we have, if we don't restore the family sanctity, and by the way, I, I want to make this who I am. I'm Jewish, but, and the only difference between Judaism and Christianity, the, the, the biggest difference obviously is the absence of Christ in Judaism versus sure, understand. Christianity. But the difference is Christian, and but I've read the New Testament backwards and forwards more than once. Right. So I'm, I'm, sure. I'm probably the best versed Jewish guy you'll ever meet on the gospels. Christ taught redemption through faith. Accept Jesus Christ into your life. And, and if you genuinely do it and live that life, you will achieve redemption. Jews believe in redemption through acts. Jews view 
God's what was going on in Israel right now is a good example. Jews don't believe in turning the other cheek. Jews are a very eye for an eye kind of thing. That's why, you know, uh, Netanyahu said he's he's going to take out revenge. That's a very Jewish thought. Okay, he Jews have a little difference in the way we look at the uh, world, but sure. no basic, problem, the yeah. basic values, the the, the basic that Jesus himself was an Orthodox Jew because back then there were only Orthodox Jews, and. Christianity is built on these on the same, you know, we Judeo-Christian values built the West. And yes. somehow we've gotten afraid to say that the West is better than everything else, but it is. Western culture, Judeo-Christian culture, is superior in every way to every yeah. other culture on this planet. And I'd debate that with anybody, anywhere, anytime. You know, I, I, I see people like experiment with Buddhism, and I have no, I don't disrespect Buddhism. But it's a very fatalistic religion, and there's no—it's no coincidence that Tibet, where the Dalai Lama comes from, is extremely poor. It—they're—they're right. they're, they're, they're a thousand years behind us in, in technology, because they don't share the same values, the same work ethic, the same study ethic. You know that Judeo-Christian society does. Black people in this country, and I, I want to preface this: not a, this is not a racist statement. I'm just going to point something out like to blame the legacy of slavery and everything else. The West is the only place in history where slavery was ended by a different race. Okay. Yep. We are the only country in history that actually fought a war to free people of a different race. Right. Okay. And sometimes bad leads to good. And what I always say to to my black, in fact, I did a podcast yesterday out of Philadelphia with a we had a black host who was who advocated this, and we had a, a very friendly but spirited discussion. And I said, "Look, let me ask you a question. Let's say that we started a program, and that program was called the African American Switch Program. And here's the deal: to any any American black who wants to go live in Africa, we'll give them a hundred thousand dollars tax free and the ticket over, but." The, the catch is we have to get an African to come back. So it's not a racist program. An Afri that the African that's coming back, that we're going to, so we'll have the same number of black people, but we'll get the African guy and Africa will get the American guy. Now, the African guy doesn't get any money at all. All he does is get a ticket to the United States and a green card. Now, I'm telling you, the line in, in Africa, if that program exists, would be miles long. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But how many American blacks would leave this country to live in any African country? Black people in America today live better than any other black people on the planet, period. There's no exception to it. You can't make the, and when I told this to him, he wasn't happy. And then he went into, re, you know, the reparation story. And I said, look, what are we, Obama's a good example. He's not black. He's, bi, he's biracial. And a lot of black people are. What are we going to do? Figure out how much white and how much black and how are you affected? Stop it. And Speaking as a Jew, especially, because we are the most persecuted people in history, if you look at it objectively, Jews yep. have been persecuted since day one by every civilization. They, we always say Absolutely. they come and they go, but we're still here. <laughs> Jews don't play victim, okay? Oh. Yes, six million of us were killed, you know, 70 years ago. But we don't whine about that every day. We recognize it. We'll never let it happen again. That's why Israel exists. But we don't use it as an excuse not to perform. Jews do well. It's not some kind of genetic luckiness. It's that we have a study ethic and we put our heads down and we do what we have to do. 
Yep. So and uh, real, here we go. That's quick, a, that's all I want to say there. Go yeah. ahead, Herbie. Here, here's how simple this is. And I know for a fact in my heart, Jews and Christians understand what I'm fixing to say. Human beings are fallen. We're no longer part of the Garden of Eden. We have failed, starting with Adam, to obey God. So from day one, when we're born, we are born into sin. We're born into evil. And we must be adjusted and controlled and, and trained and educated and loved to get out of that sinful heart because of the fall of human human beings, right? Just because it's interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in on the Jewish point of view on this. Jews don't believe in original sin. The, okay. the, way, Jews look, the way Jews look at life is not black and white, it's gray. That's why there's an old joke that says, if you put two Jews in a room, you get 20 opinions. Okay, that's why Jews are still arguing. It's really true. It's it, it's yeah, really true. Gotcha. Okay, now the way Jews view, Jews have a very different view of God than Christians do in the sense that there's no Holy Ghost in Judaism. So where the Trinity in Christianity exists, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost is the part of the Trinity that directly speaks to you and 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 hears your prayers. Sure, and, and and yep. have you con- And I'm just, want you gotcha. know that I understand that. Jews don't have that. So the way we look at God is that God gave you a brain set the world spinning, gave you a set of rules and laws to bring out. Chosen people means we were chosen to bring the laws of God to the rest of humanity. Yes. That's Moses was the chosen to bring yes. the laws of God. That's what chosen people means. It doesn't mean we're special. It doesn't mean that we're better. We were simply chosen to bring the Ten Commandments and the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to mankind. We call it the Pentateuch, but let's not even yeah. get into that. It gets very... Sure. In, no, in the I, weeks. I I know but, all about it. I read but, it. But the bottom line is this. Okay, Jew, Jews don't think, Jews think that the world is for us to make or break. God gave us the rules. He told us how to live. He gave yes. us the laws. He gave an affirmative plan on how to live your life, and you ignore it to your peril. That's that's the Jewish point of view. But it's, no, but it's just a little yeah. different. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. The difference is, let's go back to the, the Western civilization, right? And this is a great discussion in, in light of what's going on. Is uh, If you go back to Jacob and Esau, and you know where I'm going with this. God hated Esau and loved Jacob. That was the beginning of this split and why did Jacob or why did God call Jacob Israel because he was forming what you're talking about people that are connected directly connected with God and Esau went off and created Edom and eventually became the Muslim world and this, yeah, is we're, what we're we're, this is what we're dealing we're, with. We're not too right? crazy about the Muslim world at this point, us Jews. Let's just right, say that. But, but see, the, the you know, people think, well, this is, you know, Palestine is. No, no, no. This is God's people, good and evil, against 
Satan, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, you know, the evil of the world. And I it don't... can be described in these two environments that started with Jacob and Esau. And a lot of people don't understand that. Respectfully, I have a different view of Islam, but but it's it's it, that it, we come to the same place. My view of Islam is it's a very young religion, and it's yeah. it's it's very in many ways it's more similar to Judaism than Christianity is in the sense that it has the same Sabbath and the same dietary laws. Halal is the same as kosher, and they celebrate Sabbath on Saturday, which they consider the seventh day as Jews. We started one is Sunday, seven is Saturday. Not one is Monday, seven is Sunday. But that's a small difference. But Islam, the way Jews look at their Arab neighbors in the Middle East is that we're having a battle with our cousins. Now, Islam is only 1,300 years old. Judaism is almost 6,000 years old. Yes. Christianity is over 2,000 years old. As time has gone by, so let's talk about Christianity and keep it on focus. Originally, Rome didn't fall. Rome became the Catholic Church. That's what happened to Rome. People always say exactly. that Rome fell. Yeah. Rome did not. No. Rome never Absolutely. fell. I agree. 100%. It simply changed. The Pope is the Pontifex Maximus. Yep. Okay. Nuns are the Vestal Virgins. It's the it. They they took the Roman tradition and they wove it together and it created Catholicism, which became Absolutely. the first yep. organized Christian church. But. Then came along Martin Luther with the Reformation, and Christianity began to look at the world more, more as, the, as the New Testament laid it out, and less as ceremonial, which right. most of that ceremony is Roman ceremony. When, when you look yes. at, at Catholic, and by the way, I love Catholics. I'm not knocking Catholicism. I'm just yeah. saying it, well, it's the, it is the I'm, remnant of, so you know, of the Roman I am Empire. Not a, I am not a Catholic. So I don't get in anybody's way. You know, Jews are such a small group. We don't pick on anybody. You know, you, you can be whatever <laughs> you want. You know, we're not here to pick on you or anybody else. I'm just pointing out right. the history of it. But the point is, our religions have become very mature. And we've had a lot of, and Christian, I, I want to bring this up. I, I re, it's just because Monday was Columbus Day. And you know, there's a, and I'm not changing the subject. And a lot of people, the modernists and the progressives, called Columbus a slave master and a horrible, and all. let me tell you that Columbus was possibly the greatest man in history and how yeah. lucky we were. You could view Columbus discovering America. Uh, inevitably, America was going to be discovered. It was just a matter of time. And at the time, there were two great seafaring empires. One was, was the European empires and the other was the Ottoman empire. And the Ottomans and, and the Moors were... Sea Imagine what our lives would be today if Columbus had not discovered America and the Muslims. It was inevitable that someone was going to get here first. Thank yep. God it was Christian. It was Columbus. Yeah, it was Columbus. Absolutely. Okay, and Columbus is a great man. He wasn't a perfect man. But you know what? People don't crap marble, you know? We're all just people, you know? <laughs> we we are. all. Yeah. The, the only reason that historical figures seem perfect in retrospect is because Back then, they didn't record them, and no, you didn't really know them. But they were all just like us. You know, Abe Lincoln farted, just like every other human being. <laughs> okay? You know, it, yeah. it's George Washington had horrible teeth. Okay? He also had a foul <laughs> mouth. You know, it, he, he was famous with his troops during the Revolution for being very foul-mouthed. And he did that because he knew how to talk to his troops. He knew how an officer could talk to that group of people that were his, that were his soldiers. He wasn't a perfect person. 
he owns slaves, but I got into this argument with this other host too. In the context of the time, how could he put, you, you can't put 21st century values on an 18th century man. That's that's insane. Okay, but it's, anyway, I could go on and on. Let's get back to, the, to right. what we were yeah. talking about. So look, we're at the end of the hour here. So appreciate you dearly. Tell us how this audience can get to the 1964 plan, uh, social media, whatever, whatever you're using. The to... 1964 plan, um, I, I'd ask you to go to the website. It's called the 1964plan.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. And obviously, we're trying to raise money, and we're trying to organize and gain volunteers. We, If you donate to us, we are an educational um, nonprofit. We don't take a political position. We don't prefer Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. We, we don't get involved in politics. We're strictly educational. The idea behind it is that I believe, as the founder of, of this movement, that we are on the brink of a world depression unlike anything we've ever yeah. seen before. Yeah, and I we're very, that. very close. I think it'll be very unlikely. And I have, a, by the way, a very strong financial background. I'm not just saying this off the top of my head. Sure. I don't want to bore everybody, but I could give you a million reasons why the party's over. And it's going to be any day now. And when it happens, people are going to panic and look for an alternative. And the alternative could be very bad. What we're trying to do is put forth a moral... I built anti-politism on two philosophies because I understood that a lot of people aren't going to church. So I wanted to find a philosophy that people that go to church and people that don't go to church could embrace. And I embrace stoicism. So it's based on courage, justice, wisdom, and moderation are the four pillars of the, of our movement, which are also the four pillars of stoicism. Yeah. And that policy should be driven by objective reality. You cannot create a new reality through policy. So if you go to the 1964plan.org, you'll find a series of white papers that I wrote explaining the plan in detail, including my sources. If I make a claim like women are the unhappiest they've ever been, I put it in the footnotes so you can go look at it too and know I'm not just making it up. And then if you feel motivated, please donate. And more importantly, please volunteer. Thank you, Herbie, so much. Thank you for your service again. And Thank you, Gunny, for your service. Yep. Looking forward to staying connected and whatever I can do for you, just let me know. Have a wonderful it's been evening. A, it's been a huge pleasure and God bless America. Absolutely. We'll talk to you later, Herbie. Talk to you soon. Wish the buck was still silver And it was back when the country was strong Back before Elvis, before the Vietnam War came along Before the Beatles and yesterday when a man could still work and still would It's the best of the free life behind us now 
the good times really over for good. I wish Coke was still cola and a joint was a bad place to be. It was back before Nixon lied to us all on TV. Before microwave ovens, when a girl could still cook and still wood. It's the best of the free life behind us now. The good time's really over for good. I'm rolling down a hill like a snowball headed for hell. But no kind of chance for the flag on the Liberty Bell. I wish a Ford and a Chevy would still last ten years like they should. The best of the free life behind us now The good time's really over for good Stop rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell Thank you, Will. Stand up for the flag and let's all ring the liberty Let's make a Ford and a ship that would still last ten years like they should. Cause the best of the free life is still yet to come. The good times ain't over for good.